Welcome to another fascinating episode of Body, Mind, and Soul with our host, Dr. Jim Polakoff. Regardless of your age, our motto is, you're never too old to be young. Now to our host. Welcome. I'm Dr. Jim Polakoff. And during this episode of Body, Mind, and Soul, we're going to tackle one of America's most disabling and impactful diseases. An estimated 6.2 million Americans, age 65 and older, are living with Alzheimer's dementia today. But this figure doesn't count the millions upon millions of spouses and adult children who are saddled with the burden and agony of caring for family Alzheimer's victims. I would like you to pay particular attention to this interview, because as you will learn, Alzheimer's disease can be detected in an early stage, and early treatment can make a huge difference in the ongoing quality of life for the victim and her or his family. You might be the one to spot it and the hero of our story. Fortunately, my guest for this podcast is Dr. Kim G. Johnson, a geriatric psychiatrist and division chief of the Duke Memory Disorders Clinic in Durham, North Carolina. She'll have the answers to enlighten us. Dr. Johnson, this is an interview that I've been looking forward to because it's so important we gain a better understanding of Alzheimer's disease. I speak not only for the victims and their families, but those who need to be aware of the signs which can lead to Alzheimer's and what to do about it. So welcome, Dr. Johnson, and thank you for setting aside your valuable time. Yeah, well, thank you for having me today. I think it's uh, you know really important that we talk about Alzheimer's disease and just thankful that you've identified it as an important topic for your show. Very important. So let's get right to it. Specifically, what is Alzheimer's disease? Well, Alzheimer's disease is a type of dementia. And when we talk about dementia, a definition of dementia is when somebody is experiencing cognitive decline, that is a change for them in their daily life. So it's occurring on a daily basis. And they also have a decrease in functioning from how they functioned before in their life. So they're not able to function as they did before. For example, they're not able to manage their finances or manage their medications the way they did before. They might be having some more troubles with driving and um, with uh, visuospatial skills and figuring out maps in their head, uh, might be having trouble cooking a meal and multitasking. So that's what a definition of dementia is. Um, there's also mild cognitive impairment, which is a milder form of dementia where people are having changes to their cognition on a daily basis, but they're still functioning normally in their life. And, and cognitive impairment precedes a diagnosis of dementia. But when we think about mild kind of impairment and dementia, we try and think about what could be causing these types of symptoms. And that's where Alzheimer's disease comes in. It is one of the causes of mild kind of impairment and dementia. So, so the dementia and the Alzheimer's come together. In other words, it's one and the same. Yes, yes. I would say that everyone with Alzheimer's disease has some type of mild cognitive impairment or dementia. Everybody with mild cognitive impairment or dementia does not have Alzheimer's disease. So, so dementia, if we want to think about it, and mild cognitive impairment is just this umbrella. And then Alzheimer's disease is one of the causes. And Alzheimer's disease is a neurodegenerative disease. 
So there are many different causes for dementia, neurodegenerative disease, of which Alzheimer's disease is one, um, stroke, vitamin deficiencies, thyroid problems, you know, sleep apnea can contribute to cognitive impairment and dementia. But- so that's all part of dementia, the things that you've just mentioned. So yeah. it's under this umbrella of dementia and under the umbrella, the one of the most significant factors or considerations is Alzheimer's. Yes. Alzheimer's disease causes about 60 to 70% of dementia. Okay. So Dr. Johnson, obviously age is a factor, but what are some of the other factors that lead to Alzheimer's? Well, I think the, uh, like you identified, the most prominent risk factor is age. And we know that as people get older, they have higher risk factors, I mean, higher risk for developing Alzheimer's disease. Other risk factors include um, exercise level and um, what we term, you know, lifestyle risk factors like tobacco use, alcohol use, exercise over the course of a lifetime. There are also vascular risk factors, including high blood pressure, diabetes, high lipids, and stroke. It's interesting that um, in 2017, the working group for Alzheimer's disease also added hearing loss to a risk factor mm-hmm. for Alzheimer's disease. And so um, we do know that people who develop hearing loss are at higher risk for developing Alzheimer's disease. And so it's, it's always one thing that I check on during appointments. So it's interesting you mentioned exercise. So, you know, obviously get off the couch, walk, do whatever you can, swim. Uh, that will reduce your risk in a sense for Alzheimer's. But of course, other factors can come into play, like you mentioned, hypertension, things of that nature. So there's just a whole slew of things you have to be aware of, but at least you can eliminate some things that are within your control, like exercise. Yeah. And exercise is an interesting thing to think about. Um, There have been studies on exercise as a risk factor in how to prevent Alzheimer's disease. And two studies that were really interesting were that it doesn't matter what type of exercise you're doing. So like sort of uh, less moderate intensity exercise is just as meaningful as very intense exercise. So walking, yoga, those type of activities can be just as effective at preventing cognitive decline as running and marathons and those type of activities. So it's, it's good to know that just getting out, getting moving, staying active can be very important. What about crossword puzzles? Are those good things to do to keep your mind active and alert? Or does that have much to do with it if you're going to obviously have some sort of cognitive disorder? Well, we do know that staying active mentally is very important. Um, Social interaction is also very important. And just getting out and doing, doing things in your life that increase your social interaction with other people. COVID has had a huge effect on Mm -hmm. Alzheimer's disease, just because people are not getting out and being cognitively stimulated as they would before. So I think definitely to answer your question, cognitive stimulation is very important to prevent Alzheimer's disease. One of the facts that really jumped out at me that that concerns me is that two-thirds of the seniors who suffer from Alzheimer's are women. So what accounts for this lopsided percentage compared to men? Yeah, that's that's a really interesting phenomenon that um, we've observed uh, in research studies and then definitely in uh, studies in society where we look at different groups that are, are being affected by Alzheimer's disease. And and actually, we don't know why. And we know that more research needs to be done. There are some 
ideas about what cause what is causing that. And one of the things is that women are living longer and they have a longer lifespan. And, and we just mentioned that increasing age is a risk factor. But in research studies, we know that this alone can't explain the difference. So there have been other ideas thrown out there by different groups who are interested in this topic. Another idea is that women historically have had less years of education than men. And so we do know that education and the cumulative amount of education over a lifetime is a risk factor with lower educational attainment having more risk than higher educational attainment. And and we do know it'll be interesting to see in the future what happens as uh, women have been catching up with men and the the educational uh, levels have been equaling out. That will be very interesting. But but also another group are African-Americans. I understand African Americans experience a higher rate of disease. Why is that? So, and again, we don't know. Um, there are several factors, uh, again, that need more research. There are genetic risk factors, and we do know the risk of dementia among African Americans who have a relative with dementia is higher than white Americans. And then uh, vascular risk factors may come into play. Um, African Americans do have higher risk of diabetes, hypertension, and stroke than white Americans, and that may be contributing. So overall, I think we do need more research to discover why these uh, differences exist and place African Americans at higher risk. But I I will say, you know, back to the, the issue with women, there's a lot of interesting research going on into the role of hormones and wondering you know, the, about the role of pregnancy and menopause as it relates to um, Alzheimer's disease risk and also the, the role of stress and depression. We do know that women have higher rates of depression and uh, wondering if that's playing a role in uh, developing Alzheimer's disease at higher rate. And listening to you, apparently there is so much more to learn about this disease. It sounds like we're almost still on the cusp of trying to understand what is going on. Yeah, yeah, and definitely more research needs to be done. I think it's exciting uh, to think about finding these answers to decrease Alzheimer's risk and find a cure for all people and all sexes and all races. And actually at Duke, we um, just got funding for a Duke UNC Alzheimer's Disease Research Center, and we're building a cohort or a group of people to study, mainly to study cognition and aging through the lifespan and focusing specifically on uh, women as a piece, like through menopause and what happens Mm -hmm, during that mm -hmm. menopause transition. And then also focusing on African-Americans and trying to make sure that our study has at least 20% African-Americans so that we can study uh, African-Americans and white Americans as they age. Now, I'm going to ask you in in a little bit some more about that uh, joint venture that you're doing with UNC, but according to the Alzheimer's Association, there are 10 early signs of the disease. And we know, uh, as when I've talked to you before, early detection or early detection is so very important. We're going to be publishing the Alzheimer's Association 10 early signs of the disease on on our website. But Dr. Johnson, why is early detection of Alzheimer's so important? And what are the glaring signs that, that pop out? Uh, you don't have to go into all 10, but the ones that really pop out to you. Well, um, to answer your first question, why is early detection important? Um, for several reasons. I think the most important reason is for the patient themselves, because 
when somebody's having cognitive changes and they're not able to think the way they used to, they're not able to function in their life the way they used to, they know something's going on. And I think that can be so distressing. Often say that when people are trying to function as they used to, and they're not able to because something's weighing on, it creates a lot of anxiety. And then anxiety creates worsening cognition. And it's just a Mm -hmm. never ending cycle that can be really distressing. And so coming and finding out what's going on is really important for the patient themselves. So, so first of all, for the patient, second of all, for the patient and the family or as a unit so that they can start to plan and think about what does this change mean to us in our life and, and how can we further you know, what can we, what do we want to do in our life about this? And how do we want things to go forward? Who's going to be a healthcare power of attorney? Who's going to help make decisions? Um, And then how, how do we want to live? Do we want to do things today that we would have put off for tomorrow? Things like that. So, so very important for that reason too. So I, my my question uh, also just to hone in on this just a bit, you're a, let's say uh, you're a middle-aged couple and your parents, one of your parents seems to be in some type of decline. It, it may be just a form of depression because things aren't going the way they wanted to. Perhaps they, you know, their career has ended and now they're not sure what to do with themselves. So that could lead to some sort of depression. But what are the obvious signs that should pop out of someone to say, uh-oh, we better really take a good look at this, or we better have my father or my mother checked out? So I'd say that Family members often notice that patients or their loved ones will repeat questions. So that's pretty pretty common where they'll um, they'll talk with them. Loved ones might not see their family members all the time, but they'll notice like when I talk with them on the phone, they repeat questions, they repeat conversations. Um, they're having more difficulty just managing the checkbook, paying the bills. They're having difficulty taking medications. So especially for patients with high blood pressure or diabetes, their their blood pressure or their diabetes might be out of control at levels that it should be because they've forgotten to take medications. They might have difficulty driving, like maybe missing a turn or getting lost, come to somebody's house or, or finding a new location. So those are, those are things that um, can be signs that something's going on. They also might have difficulty just remembering what day of the week it is or what the date is. So any of those signals should perhaps, you know, trigger uh, uh, more of an inquisition as to what might going on. I mean, it, 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 at a certain point, do you recommend that um, if you see your loved one in that type of a situation or you begin to become suspicious that something might be going on, would you then encourage them to, for example, meet with a neurologist at Duke or? What step would be, you know, what would be the next step if you begin to detect this? Because I'm sure that your parent would be in denial. Yeah, and it's a it's a hard thing to um, think about happening. So, so I think probably a first step should be going would would be going to a primary care doctor and saying, you know, we're having we're noticing these changes and um, are they significant? There is a certain amount of uh, memory and cognitive loss that can be associated with normal aging. And so finding out what's attributable to normal aging and what could be a sign of a memory disorder is really important. Just going to a primary care and having some initial cognitive screening 
is a good idea. I know the the Medicare uh, wellness exams that are done by primary care do have a component of cognitive screening. And we often get a lot of referrals in the clinic from primary care physicians who's uh, who have identified patients who've had issues with the cognitive screening or when family members bring up concerns. That's a good suggestion. I understand there are three stages, correct me if I'm wrong, early, moderate, and severe. So you obviously want to try to jump in at the earliest stage you possibly can without obviously embarrassing your, you know, your other one, your loved one. Yeah. Yeah. Early stage um, mostly occurs when some of those symptoms that I mentioned before are occurring. Maybe family members are not remembering conversations. That's probably the most common thing that we hear about in the office. And, And that occurs in very early stage. And then early stages can also start to affect functioning, like decrease inability to do finances, decrease inability to manage medications are the two most common things we see. And then once Alzheimer's disease progresses to more moderate stage, then um, ability to dress, ability to remember to shower, those type of personal care items start to be affected. And then severe stage, obviously, is is uh, you know very end stage where people are having trouble feeding themselves and losing mobility and having a lot of trouble walking. So I, I think that's very important because if we've learned anything in this discussion, it's early detection is absolutely essential. And uh, I really do want to emphasize that. But let's focus on Duke for a minute. Uh, many members of our audience may not be aware that Duke Health is a pioneer in neurology. And as a matter of fact, it's you know, top ranked nationally from what I my investigation shows, at least. So as Division Chief of Memory Disorders at the Department of Neurology, What can you tell us, Dr. Johnson, about advances? What advances do you find at Duke in treating Alzheimer's? We're doing lots of research studies at Duke. So, um, and and I think that's really an area where Duke excels. So the APOE4 allele was actually uh, discovered at Duke and uh, important genetic risk factor that uh, we test for and that is tested for all over the world now as, as a genetic risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. So so I think Duke has been a pioneer with research studies. We, we want to do research studies to try and figure out what causes Alzheimer's disease and how it affects the body. So, and that's an important mission in our clinic when we have patients come into the clinic um, is, is, you know, I always want to tell them about research studies they can participate in at Duke and how they can get involved and partner with us to help discover more about the disease. Well, I'm curious, since uh, two-thirds of cases of Alzheimer's appear to be prominent among women, at Duke, do you treat women differently than you approach the treatment for men? We actually don't treat women differently. And the reason why we don't treat women differently is because there aren't any unique treatment. There aren't any treatments that are unique to women. And I think that's why a lot of research needs to be done in this field to try and figure out what what are the unique causes of Alzheimer's disease in women and how does it affect women uniquely? And then we'd be able to develop more precision medicine approaches to treating women. But right now we do treat Alzheimer's disease the same for men and women and for people of different races also. So you mentioned a little earlier about the Joint Association. North Carolina is fortunate to have two university medical systems among the top in the nation. And I understand that Duke University and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill 
have teamed up and just received a $15 million grant from the National Institute of Health to create an Alzheimer's disease research center. And as I understand, you're also the leader of the center at this point. So what can you tell us about the program that you're doing jointly with UNC? Yeah, well, thank you for mentioning that. And and I do want to clarify that I'm one, I'm the associate director of the clinical core, which is just one little section of the center. So definitely not the overall leader. Uh, we do have a, a leader, Heather Whitson, who's um, in geriatric medicine at Duke, and then she's our Duke leader. And then we also have a, a leader, Gwen Garden, who's the Department of Neurology chair at UNC. But uh, we are aiming to come together to figure out, again, what causes Alzheimer's disease and how we can best treat it. Another important mission of the center is to figure out how people age. So since uh, there, uh, Heather Woodson is our leader, there is a, in geriatric medicine, there is a focus on cognition and aging and how these two things interact over the course of a lifetime. It's interesting to note that there are people that as they age, develop Alzheimer's pathologic changes in their brain, but don't develop Alzheimer's disease. So that's a really interesting question. It's like, why is this group not developing Alzheimer's disease symptoms when they have Alzheimer's pathology in the brain? But then this other group has Alzheimer's disease pathology in the brain, and they do develop symptoms. So um, those are important questions that we want to answer by looking at this large group of people as they age over their lifetime. Now, I understand that uh, a brain bank is being created as part of the program. What is a brain bank? A, a brain bank is a exactly what it sounds like. It's a collection of brains um, that have been donated by by various generous donors to study changes that have occurred in the brain during a lifetime. So uh, we we do have or we're we're in the process of developing an autopsy program through our our research study at the Duke UNC Alzheimer's Disease Research Center, where people at the time of their death can donate their brain. So the idea is that people would enroll in our study and we would see them yearly until their time of death. And if they wanted to contribute their brain to the brain bank, they could then donate their brain at the time of death. You know, when somebody donates their brain, the brain is then looked at and studied to try and see what types of changes have occurred in the brain over time. This could be a major contribution. Uh, if you know, obviously, you've heard of cases where someone's in an automobile accident and is, uh, obviously dies, uh, but yet their organs are, you know, available to uh, for others for transplanting. Would be the the same thing, for example, if you were in an accident and something should happen to you, your demise, that you could, in your will or whatever the case might be, donate your brain to uh, to your Duke Brain Center. Yeah, well, I think ideally we'd like people to be in our research study and follow them over time. And as I mentioned, if somebody wanted to participate in the Duke UNC Alzheimer's Disease Research Center as a research participant, they would come in, we would do neuropsychological testing, take sample of blood, take a, an MRI of their head, take a sample of cerebral spinal fluid, and also do other measures of of aging, such as measuring vision, hearing, gait speed, grip strength, those sorts of things. Right. And, then, and then they would, so we would have this baseline of measurements, and then they would come back the next year and have neuropsych testing done. And again, the measures of vision, hearing, and then every year thereafter, again, have cognition measured, 
those aging measurements just to see how people are aging over time. And if they wanted to, at the end of the study or whenever they did die, they would donate their brain. And then we would have this rich amount of information to be able to look at their cognition and and other measures over time, and then compare it to their brain and see, you know, just what we would discover at that point. So that makes a lot lot of sense. So really here again, early detection, once early detection begins, that would be a good time to enroll in the study, I'm assuming. Yeah, or even uh, with normal cognition. Actually, a goal that we have um, developing the the group of people that we're going to study is to get a fair amount of people with normal cognition who have a family history of Alzheimer's disease. Uh And again, we want to make sure that we have representation from all races and group of African-Americans in our study that are recruited as well as white Americans. And we would study them over time and look for any changes. Okay. Well, Dr. Johnson, I've heard of a new drug for Alzheimer's, which has been approved by the FDA. Uh, It's a tough one to pronounce, aducanubab. But apparently, a treatment drug has become somewhat controversial. Am I correct? Yeah. The the approval of aducanumab was an accelerated approval by the FDA. The FDA approved the drug through an accelerated approval, which means that the clinical effectiveness of the drug is unknown, but we do know that the drug affects Alzheimer's biomarkers. So the drug has been shown to decrease amyloid in the brain and decrease tau in the brain, which are two proteins involved in Alzheimer's disease. And so the the drug was approved based on that knowledge, but the clinical effectiveness of the drug is still unknown. And so it was approved with the condition that more research studies would be done on the drug as it's given Mm -hmm. people over time. So is this something that you prescribe to certain patients you feel it might help? I have actually not prescribed it yet, um, just because Duke is still making a decision about whether it's going to be on the formulary at Duke, um, and that's outstanding. It is a controversial uh, approval, and so we're we're just waiting to see. I think that there, there could be um, a certain patient who is an appropriate candidate for aducanumab, and it's really a decision that would be made, you know, among doctors and patients on an individual by individual uh, basis. I'm yeah, saying. on an individual right. by individual basis, depending on what you know the patient's goals, patients and families' goals are. Now, I've looked at the statistics, and over the next thirty-five years, Alzheimer's cases are predicted to double. So it appears there's no real cure in sight if these numbers are popping up like that. Can you inform us of any new promising cures, treatments on the horizon? So I think that the the way that Alzheimer's disease is going is to try and figure out how we can postpone the disease. And I think that's a first step. And then a second step is to do more clinical trials on things that are different ways Alzheimer's disease could be caused. Um, we, we now have several clinical trials that have been done on amyloid uh, buildup in the brain. Um, there are more clinical trials on a protein called tau. There are other clinical trials that are trying to target inflammation or chronic inflammatory states in, in the body that might be causing Alzheimer's disease in the brain. And there's also uh, genetic therapy, which could possibly like alter the ApoE4 allele and change that over time. 
So there are lots of different mechanisms. And there is this idea that it might take multi hits or multi, you know, we might have to come at Alzheimer's disease through multiple directions um, in the future. So another interesting field at Duke that's being explored is um, magnetic stimulation of the brain to see if this could have any effect on cognition. So so there are... So how does that work? As, as a magnet pulling in knowledge or, or a reaction? Um, well, and, th- and this is not uh, proven yet. These are just one of, one of the studies that's going on, but it's where um, a magnet stimulates the brain in areas related to memory and thinking to see if ah. there's an effect. So, but there, there are so many uh, different types of uh, directions that research is going and and at Duke, we're excited to be part of all this and and participate in a cure. Um, and I think I mentioned also the the importance of precision medicine or personalized medicine. And uh, and and you've talked in several times in this discussion about early detection and and biomarkers um, for amyloid and tau are really going to be important factors in the future and trying to find. Um, you know, ways that we can detect biomarkers in the body for early detection of disease will be important. Now, in terms of early detection, if you're someone that obviously uh, you're going to participate uh, or you're going to visit your neurologist or your primary care doctor first, then your neurologist, perhaps if you're referred, is it a good idea to consider enrolling in a study during the early detection phase? Would this be more helpful to a uh, someone who's saddled with the potential of this disease growing and expanding? Uh, yeah, definitely. And and I think that if people have like genetic risk or family history of Alzheimer's disease, then it would be interesting to enroll in a study at, you know, when cognition is normal or when, when everything is, you know, when you're normal and functioning. So you could be followed over time to detect any changes. That is an advantage of being in our our research study that we're developing through the Duke UNC Alzheimer's Disease Research Center is the fact that you would come for a visit yearly and even small changes could be noticed. And then um, you could be informed of those changes. You also have the ability to find out about your genetic risk and also biomarker status. So, and, and one thing that's interesting about biomarkers that's in development is that currently the only way Alzheimer's disease can accurately by, be diagnosed is through biomarkers in the cerebral spinal fluid. And so here at Duke and other places all around the world, we're trying to advance discovery of biomarkers in the blood so that someday possibly people could come in and have a a simple blood test to say if they're at risk for developing Alzheimer's disease. Oh, that would be excellent. Out of curiosity, our audience will want to know this since most of of them are 65 and older. Is most of what you've discussed, even getting into a study, is this covered through Medicare? Well, all research studies at Duke are paid for by the study. So our study uh, that we do, people come in and that's why we, we obtain this funding and the funding from the NIH pays for the blood tests, the MRI, the evaluation of the biomarkers, pays for research study personnel to, to conduct the study. And so when somebody elects to participate in research, we're, we're always so happy um, and that they're there to partner with us and, and there is no charge to them. So for, if someone's on a fixed income, as most seniors are these days, um, they don't have to worry about that. They can enroll in the study and not have to worry about money out of pocket that you know keeps them alive. Yes, definitely. And if anybody participates in clinical trials, the cost, clinical trials involve 
you know, treating with a medication, a, a mm-hmm. medication that's undergoing study. And so when patients receive that medication, there is no cost to them to receive the medication. The drug company pays for them to receive the medication. Excellent. Now, let's, last question. Uh, let's get into Dr. Johnson a bit personally. You've been involved in the battle of Alzheimer's for quite some time. I understand your interest in the overlap of psychiatry and neurology started way back when you were with the VA, and uh, that's when your interest began. Why is this overlap so important between neurology and psychiatry, and what are you personally endeavoring to do with your work these days? Well, I'd say that a long time ago, psychiatry and neurology were all one field, and it is the study of the brain. So they they both deal with the brain, which controls cognition, memory, thoughts, feelings, movement, sensation. And so, so I think that um, psychiatry and neurology are very much related. And in, like I mentioned before, I think um, cognition is very related to depression, anxiety, and there's a huge overlap between cognition and, and um, psychiatric symptoms. We actually call them neuropsychiatric symptoms. So when people have Alzheimer's disease, they can develop anxiety, depression, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes psychosis symptoms, which include hallucinations, delusions, or altered perceptions. They can become very irritable or agitated. And so th- there is a big overlap between neurology and psychiatry in, in Alzheimer's disease. So one thing that's important to me um, is just helping people live their best life every day. And so when somebody is diagnosed with a cognitive disorder, there are so many things they're experiencing. Most prominent symptom that I see is just anxiety or fear over what's happening to them. And so um, just being able to find out more information and knowledge is important. Um, It helps people accept what's going on because, you know, I do tell people they know something's going on before they come in. And and if it is a cognitive disorder, it's not going to go away. It's going to stay there and persist. And, and so there's so much uncertainty around having a cognitive disorder and coming in and finding out information and knowledge creates certainty. Sounds like you have a skill to put people at ease. Yeah. Which then decreases anxiety and helps them be able to plan. And also, you know, after they get a diagnosis of a cognitive disorder, um, just being able to accept what's going on and figure out, okay, like, how do I move on from this? How does my family um, live each day and then live my best life every day? So so that, that is important. I think that, um, you know, when we talk about my goals, it is important for our society to be more open and talk about Alzheimer's disease. I notice that sometimes, you know, people don't want to talk about Alzheimer's. I think that there's more acceptance of mental health issues like depression, anxiety in our society now than there is of Alzheimer's disease. And I think that, you know, where there's secrets, there's shame. And it would be nice to take the shame out of Alzheimer's disease because Alzheimer's disease is an organic brain disease. And so, you know, it's like having a heart attack. I'll often tell patients, like, if you have a heart attack, you'll sometimes people tell people like, yes, I had a heart attack. And, but if you have Alzheimer's disease, it's something that we don't want to talk about. And until our society can be more open, talk about Alzheimer's disease, once we have, an, once we have more openness about talking about Alzheimer's disease, we'll be on our way to finding a true, true so, cure. So take the shame out of it. And that's something that family members can do to support 
the victim, even in the early stages, is to be sure to remove any feeling of shame whatsoever and, and talk about it openly. I think, I think what you've said is so important. But in any case, uh, Alzheimer's obviously is a huge topic. We're not going to be able to cover every nook and cranny that we can or we should during this interview. But I want to express my deep appreciation, and I know our audience feels the same, uh, for your fine work and perseverance. And uh, you'll be pleased to know that our website, uh, bodymindsoulpodcast.net, listeners are going to be able to find a number of important uh, facts and enlightening links. So anything that you can send our way in terms of links, we will publish these on our website so people can learn more as they go along particularly how to access your program, which is my is so amazing. And I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that we can get the word out to as many people as we can. In any case, Dr. Johnson, thank you so much for being part of this interview. And maybe we'll talk again. Um, I'll be right back to give you some tips on nutrition that you can digest. Thank you again, Dr. Johnson. Thank you. Be sure to visit our website for more information about Alzheimer's. Here you'll find links for essential information including detection, care, and treatment for this disabling, deadly disease. Our site is bodymindsoulpodcast.net. Now back to Dr. Jim Polakoff. Welcome back. As promised, as a certified nutritionist, here is my healthy eating tip for this episode. Eat more fatty fish. Probably two portions a week, I would suggest. And don't let the word fatty scare you. It's actually positive when it comes to the type of fish you're going to be eating. Fatty fish are high in omega-3 fats, which may help prevent heart disease. These include salmon, trout, sardines, herring, and mackerel. There are others, but these are important ones that will help you on your way. But having said this, I recommend you try to avoid tilapia. Now, there's a lot of tilapia around, particularly in restaurants, and unlike salmon and other fatty fish, tilapia contains an unhealthy balance of omega-6 fatty acids, while omega-3 found in salmon contains numerous health benefits. Omega-6 tends to promote inflammation associated with numerous diseases and health conditions. So, until our next episode, this wraps it up for another edition a body, mind, and soul. Please visit our website to discover more interesting, informative podcasts and read some very interesting blogs. I hope you'll enjoy them. Once again, go to bodymindsoulpodcast.net. This is Dr. Jim Polikoff. It's been a pleasure to share important information with you about Alzheimer's disease. Thanks to Dr. Johnson, and my thanks to you for listening. 